Hello and welcome to another episode of Author Conversations, presented by Arcadia Publishing and the History Press. I'm Jonathan Foster, and today I'm speaking with John Raley, the author of Lost Colony Murder on the Outer Banks. In the summer of 1967, 19-year-old Brenda Joyce Holland disappeared. She was a mountain girl who had come to Manteo to work in the outdoor drama The Lost Colony. Her body was found five days later floating in the sound. This riveting narrative, built on unique access to the state's investigative files and multiple interviews with insiders, searches for the truth of her unsolved murder. This island odyssey of discovery includes seances, a suicide, and a supposed shallow grave. Journalist John Raleigh cuts through the myths and mistakes to finally arrive at the long-hidden truth of what happened to Brenda Holland that summer on Roanoke Island. John Raleigh has spent much of his life on the Outer Banks of North Carolina. He's a graduate graduate of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He's a former page editor of the Winston-Salem Journal and has written for the Coastland Times on the Outer Banks and has won numerous national, regional, and state awards for his writings and investigative reporting. He's also the author of the memoir, Rage to Redemption in the Sterilization Age, a Confrontation with American Genocide. John, thanks for being on. Thanks, Johnny. Glad to be here. Yeah, now before we start talking about Brenda and the case... Uh, I think it's important to talk about Manteo, Manteo, uh, I know there's multiple pronunciations itself, and its uh-huh. culture to set a background to where we are in the book, um, especially 1967. Uh, you have a history in the area, and of course, um, have now written a book where the area has a setting. So give us a little bit of an idea of what the area is like, and also what it was like in 1967. Well, Manio is just beautiful. It's about 14 miles long and, um, you know, at points it's just a few miles wide. And it's um, it's it's the history just goes way back. It was the site of um, um, the 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 lost colony, um, which was in 1587, a, a band of colonists that Sir Walter Raleigh had helped establish vanished. And um, that before they vanished, they um, they had the. Um, prominence of having the first um, English child born in America was born there, Um, you know, and I think it's pretty important that there were a lot of American Indians born there before, but that's always been the thing that they like to proclaim. Very Mm -hmm. beautiful island, marshlands, um, surrounded by sounds, um, and very insular, and I had um, grown up just a few miles away in Nagshead, which is one level of insular culture, but Mania was a whole another thing so breaking into this book felt really good because um i was able to penetrate the the island culture over there and my best sources spoke in the old outer banks brogue um tide is toyed and ice ice is ice yeah and also the book it seems when you're talking early on in the book though uh it it seemed more of an accepting place to out to outsiders who i guess were different is the way yes. You say it. Once, yeah. once they once they accept you, that time. yeah, once they accept you, you're in, and it's always been a very non-judgmental place. And um, uh, as one of my best island friends says, you know, the only thing we want to know is what you want to drink, and uh, just great people. Even before the Lost Colony actors started coming in, it it always had its own sense of um, just island wild free culture. Everybody's non-judgmental. They're welcoming usually to outsiders they call them wash-ins but but once they accept you as they accepted brenda then you're in um and it's it's just a wonderful different culture um marriage is not necessarily uh, sacred um it's they just have long accepted that people are going to be gay straight by and you know they're just welcoming loving people like that they're also 
some pretty tough-ass fighters. Um, and 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 the interesting thing about the island, it's it's got two villages, Manio, which is the county seat, mm-hmm. and um, on the surface is more calm, but it's got some brutality underneath. And then just a few miles away is Wan Cheese, which is the fishing village and home to some of the roughest, tough and toughest fighters in the world. I'd put those guys up against anybody in the world for fighting, and they're some tough people. Yeah, and it didn't take. This is the world that Brenda comes into. It didn't take her long to be accepted. Um, they kind of looked at her with a kind of grace because she did help a local boy learn how to swim, who was having trouble with that ability. Uh, she she had this grace about her. In fact, that's on her tombstone, um, a poetic uh, line that her mother uh, would write about her. We'll get to that in a little bit, though. But she does come <laughs> into this world, and she's from a conservative background. But she's mm-hmm. looking to explore life, and she and that's what yeah. she's out there for. And she's not even told her mother that she has died and she's cut her hair because she know it might she knows it might upset her mom. So tell us right. more about this world she comes from and all about her background, about her parents and family life. Yeah, so she was from Canton, outside Asheville, um, very much a company town. Um, the, the one parallel I can think is you know. Roanoke Island was a company town for the Lost Colony, mm-hmm. and Canton, where she grew up, was a company town for the paper mill. Um, you know, it belched out this this sulfur smell, but that was a smell of money. And her her father and uh, uncles and cousins had long worked there, and that was just the way of life. That's what you did. It was grueling, hard work. They yeah. also had their own little slice of heaven, though. That the Hollands weren't rich by any means. Her family, but they were they were they had some good land. It's kind of like the Waltons or something. They had Holland Mountain. That And her father would hike them up there and tell them, you know, t- stories about the generations before, the rough, good people. And her father was nicknamed Shotgun because he was he was like tightly coiled. He was in World War II. He was at the Battle of the Bulge. So when so when something happened, so when Brenda vanished, he was right down there at that island within 24 hours. And he was he was going to do whatever it took took to find his daughter. Yeah. And he he had a lot of I guess what we would diagnose today is PTSD. We could say right. because this is the kind of man. Just a little bit more of a background about them. Reading in the book, his mother, her mother seemed to be very kind though, but she had her ways of you know wanting things done a certain way. It seemed like, but trying mm-hmm. to keep the mm-hmm. home in order. But he had his demons from war, which is understandable, especially being at the Battle of the Bulge. If anyone knows about that battle from from you know the World War II history, um, and he, you mentioned the book, would go down and drink every night in the basement and is sitting in his father's rocking chair, um, chain-smoking his cigarettes. Um, not an easy man, but it's understandable with what he'd seen in his life. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, if you've ever seen the um, the old movie From Here to Eternity, mm-hmm. he's kind of a cross between Montgomery, the Montgomery Cliff character and the Frank Sinatra character, just this tightly coiled um, good guy, hard loving, hard drinking. And yeah, it was PTSD, although they didn't call it that. Yeah. But, but, you know, he would, he would, he would work hard and then he'd come home and, and sit in his bunker, his basement, and he would, he would drink beer like Schlitz and, uh, and then until he shifted to bourbon and, and watch his Westerns. And, you know, the world was changing just as for Sheriff Frank Cahoon down there investigating Brenda's murder. He's, you know, Sheriff Cahoon was 60 years old. Um, shotguns, um, a, a bit younger, but the world's changing for him too. And there's ho- Brenda's generation and, you know, they just don't understand it. Like for Sheriff Cahoon, he didn't understand that whole lost colony culture. And, and as they circled around one of the suspects that worked with them, mm. you know, Cahoon's going for that suspect. So it's these, it's all these culture classes going yeah. on, including 
you know, there's homophobia, there's um, racism, and it's it for it infects that little island um, that had you know as I talk about the welcoming um, nature. Um, but for the time of that case, you had employees informing employers informing on employees, um, neighbors informing on neighbors, and lovers informing on neighbor, um, lovers. So it was, it was it was a mess. I think it was a time to try to get rid of some people. It seemed like too reading the book. Uh, <laughs> yeah. If people yeah, didn't it like, was, it was, uh, if you, especially you know one one person, and we'll get to that. In a second. We're gonna be a little bit ahead in a second because I want to talk a little bit too about she had some brothers or sisters she was close to, and we'll talk more about that later. But I want to talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that play that uh, entitled Lost Colonies, based on what you said earlier, the first attempted English settlement in North America. And it was first performed in the 1930s. Um, but it was also a great way for people to make connections to break into the entertainment industry. And that's what attracted those from off the island. I think you call them wash-ups? Wash-ins. Yeah, yeah. wash-ins. And that included Brenda. Um, she was working backstage in makeup, right? Yeah. Well, there's this wonderful Gatsby-esque nature to the whole island. And it really, I mean, there had always been the magic there, but Andy Griffith really defined the magic. I mean, he comes in, Andy had, Andy just as Brenda, he'd never even seen the ocean before he gets down there. And it blew his mind, you know, and he comes from the foothills. Brenda comes from the mountains, so they're a lot like that, and that their mind is just totally blown. I always think of the old John Denver song about he was mm-hmm. born in the summer of his 27th year going home to a place he'd never been before. Well, that was Andy and Brenda. And so after Andy, especially after he makes it big in the early 60s, there are all these people that, you know, are coming to the Lost Colony. And there were other stars, too. But Andy was the biggest one. So there are all these people like Brenda that are coming down there that want to catch the magic that Andy caught, that want to have the connections. And Andy, Andy added to it. I mean, Andy would stop would go around drinking on his pontoon boat and pull up behind the Lost Colony and come in and talk to the talk to the actors and and set people like Brenda so it's just this magical time like anybody could be anything so and that's this amazing life she has and then it's not just a lost colony but she has a social calendar too she's going to the beach she's going on to all these different places that you've mentioned in the book mm-hmm. where there's fishermen drinking there's tourists coming in and drinking um there's mm-hmm. cast members drinking there's people who who are old you know islanders come from like the old islanders that had settled you know hundreds of years ago on the island that are drinking you know that just living nightlife there everybody yeah. mixing in together so she is part of now she's not even been there you know a whole month but she's been accepted she's taken to the social calendar people know who she is and everybody notices, starts to notice one night when she's not backstage. Yes, exactly. Um, and yeah, she she's wide open and she's wide eyed and she's she's her you know and she loves to be with all these people and hear all these different conversations. Not much of a drinker herself. She'd let she she'd let a can of beer go hot before she would finish it. But she's always out there with everybody in the thick of it. And so so her her, her roommate was um, kind of a, a party girl. And um, so when, you know, if she didn't show up for a couple of days, well, that was just her. But Brenda, no, when she didn't show up, you know, she vanished in the early morning hours of Saturday, July 1st. And when she wasn't at the play that that Saturday night, they knew something was up. And they're they're talking to the sheriff's department by late that night. And Cahoon is on it by early Sunday morning. So that was how well her responsible nature is known. And it, it was so ironic because 
this was one of the best months of her life. She was just on that island for one month, but there's still people that will forever associate Roanoke Island Manio with Brenda. So she vanishes those first, you know, in the first morning hours of July 1st. Yeah, and the pictures you have of her, you can tell she's having a great time, but she's going on dates with guys, and there is a date that doesn't go so well um, right. on the night before her disappearance, and you can imagine how that would tarnish. And we want people to read the book, but it would be considered what's now um, possibly, we don't know for sure what happened, but it could be what we would call now a date rape, but they didn't have right. the term for that back then. Um, but she does disappear on the night of July 1st. And she is on a date that night. So naturally, the guy who she's going to be on a date with, his name is Danny Barber. He's going right. to be a suspect. The guys he lives with are going to be a suspect. Right. Um, and you would almost think, reading it, there's going to be an open and shut case, but it's far from that. Um, because then you hear that she's maybe walking home. And when I'm hearing she's walking home, I'm thinking, oh, that's crazy late at night walking home. But there's so much more that goes into it. Um and we want people, like I said earlier, to read the case, but read the book to find out about the case, um, to get all these stories and how they intertwine. However, would you kind of walk us through her final night a little bit to whet people's yeah. appetite? Yeah. So on her final night, so it's um, so Friday, June thirtieth. Um, she she's in the play, and then she and Danny um, leave when the play's done around eleven, and everybody, uh, several cast members, take note of that. And they uh, they ride over to the beach. They go first on the way to the beach. They stop um, at a great dive bar called um, the Drafty Tavern, just legendary dive bar right on the sound. And they talk to a couple of fellow cast members there. That's where Brenda drinks, uh, has a beer and it goes hot before she finishes it. And um, Danny and the um, a guy shoot pool and Brenda talks to the guy's wife. These people are fellow cast members. Then um, Drafty Tavern closes and they go kind of um, just about a less than a mile away to Jeanette's Pier, which is still there um, at Nags Head. And they walk out on the pier and talk to a guy that's um, fishing. And um, so then they leave there and they go over to Jockey's Ridge and they walk out on the dune, you know, this majestic sand. And it was a lot taller then. It was a real sand mountain in those days. And um, leave there, ride back to Danny's um, house where he lives with two other guys. Um, those guys um, apparently asleep. And um, da by Danny's account, he and Brenda um, sit downstairs and listen to a little music and, and drink a beer. Then they go up to his room and um, hang out a while. And um, that's where things started to go weird for him because at, at the pageant the next night, they start asking and Danny says, well, I took her back to um, to a rooming house, and then um, one of um, Brenda's landlady, who's this great, great local woman, Corey Gray Twyford, says, no, you didn't, Danny. She never came home, and then Danny admits he didn't take her home, that he went to sleep or passed out, and she apparently um, went walking and, of course, never made it home, distance of less than a mile, but very dark night, and um, so that's when the massive hunt for her began. And we are just barely scratching the surface with it, you know, even before then, because you write, the way you write the book, talking about her, you feel like you know her, you feel like she's your friend, you start to care about her before this murder happens. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And 
when it happens, the way you introduce her missing, it's uh, it, it's it's heartbreaking. And then the way that her family finds out, because where her family's are, her family's at, and you call it their little slice of heaven up in the mountains. Mm-hmm. Um, her sister finds out about it over the radio, and then has to go in and ask you know a deputy in their home county about it. And they said, "Oh, I didn't know it was your sister." They sent a deputy to actually go tell her parents. Yeah, about yeah. it late at night. Exactly. Yeah. And you got to remember, this is 1967, yeah. uh, you know, no cell phones. And, um, you know, people I remember it I, like our cottage at Nags Head, a few cottages had phones then. So I'm, I'm sure up, like at Brenda's place up in up at Lake Glenville, up, um, like an hour from Asheville. I'm sure. That, well, they didn't have a phone there. So, um, yeah. So so um, Sheriff Cahoon talks to the lost colony people early on when, you know, in the early stages of Brenda's missing and, you know, they have the phone number for her parents. And of course that's their Canton number and they're not there. And then, so he says, we got to put out an APB on her. So they put that out there. And that's when, um, Brenda's oldest, uh, older sister, Ann happens to hear it in, in Canton on the radio. And she goes to the the police department there and says, you know, they're up at Lake Glenville. We got to do something. So they send a deputy up there to tell them. Um, so, you know, it's about, you know, it's, they, they, they went to bed early that night. They were tired. Something was really strange that day though. It was a pretty good day up there. It was um, shotgun and Jerry, his wife, Brenda's mom and um, Brenda's little sister, Kim and her little brother, Charles. So they're up there. And that day, the dog Brenda had left behind when she went to college, Prince, which was a German Shepherd yeah. Collie mix, he'd been pacing up and down the driveway all day and at their place at Lake Glenville, which was very unusual for him. So the deputy gets there. It's late at night. And, you know, um, shotgun Holland's first reaction, you know, wartime, he's thinking, where's my pistol? Who is this coming up? And he peeks out the you know front window and sees it's a deputy. And then he says, oh, my God. So he's got his old Ford, Ford Sunliner convertible that's um, kin to a Thunderbird. And, you know, he and Jerry and one of the children take off in that. And another child rides back to the deputy. And, you know, they go through um, Canton and then shotgun and Jerry along with a couple of in-laws. They are headed to that island to, to find Brenda. And I just can't, you know, I don't want to know what that feels like. Um, I don't think oh, anybody no. would want to know. Uh what that feels like racing down there, but and that affects. I want to talk about Cahoon a little bit because I, I definitely want to go into him the sheriff. But I just towards the end of the book, and this isn't giving away anything in the book. It just it's a, a reminder of how something like this changes those who love the victim because her father goes even deeper into a depression. And you talk you talked yeah. a little bit about westerns before, but he can't watch these comedies on TV. He can't watch the news with you know the you know, people protesting a war because he answered the country's call to go to a war. Um, yeah. He can't watch all of this. The only thing that makes sense to him is a Western. And there's one suspect, and we're not going to talk about who it was, but he's convinced even when uh, a spotlight shifts maybe to another suspect, he's right. still convinced this one guy did did this to his daughter, and he almost goes to after him. And, you know, yeah. he just has this in his mind. He never recovers until he succumbs to dementia. The mother's siblings and the siblings, their stories are heartbreaking. Right. And, and I know you know some of the siblings as well. Um, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about how the case, you know, affected, you know, the mother and the siblings too? Yeah. I mean, they never got over it. I mean, as I say in the prologue, 
that um, you know the thing that's akin to the to the original lost colony. You know, John White, the governor of um, of Roanoke Island, he he went back to get supplies to restock, mm-hmm. and they they vanish after that. He he goes back to the the mother country to get supplies and they vanish and he comes back and they're gone. You know, his, his daughter, his new granddaughter, Ellen, um, Virginia there. And so just as he never got over that, um, Jerry and shotgun never got over the loss of Brenda. You know, this is something that transform transcends, um, centuries. So yeah. And Jerry, Jerry became, I mean, she would call little Kim, um, who became my friend, um, Brenda's little sister. She would call Kim, um, yeah, Brenda, you know, and, you know, in Jerry's depiction, Brenda could, you know, Brenda was just a human being. She was a very good person, but she wasn't perfect. But, but in Jerry's, you know, depiction in the family legend, she created, uh, Brenda could do no wrong, you know? And, and so, uh, Kim felt like she always had to live up to that. Kim Mm. never went away to college. She went to community college because her mother didn't want her to, you know, go off and be lost like that. So it was a, it was real rough and, and shotgun just started drinking more and more. And um, there was finally, as I write about, there was this, there were fissures and within the family unit that finally just yeah. came to a head with this epic fist fight between a teenage Charles and his dad over all this. And because of just every, you know, the, the parents felt like they just blown it. They felt inadequate. The children didn't know how to deal with the parents feelings. It's all very human and understandable, but for for Brendan Charles, it was it was really hard. And it's all from this one night and all these actions. And the question is still, you know, what happened? And you know, you go a long way in trying to find the answers for that in the book. And so let's go back to Sheriff Cahoon and the days kind of right after the murder. Um, because next morning is when Sheriff Cahoon is brought in. He doesn't go to church, which is apparently what he likes to do on Sunday mornings, um, according right. to the book. He skips it because he's got a missing person on his hand. He doesn't want to have that. That doesn't happen on his in his county, on his island. Because right. um, Dare County covers mainland. There's mainland Dare County and also covers the island as well. Um, right. But he, he wants to protect you know, the island's image. Uh, if there's right. people that die on the island, it's because of accidental drownings and things of that nature. Right. But as an outsider, it might just be as an outsider looking in, but for me, this guy is interesting. Right. But he's equal parts frustrating for me. Um, yes. Is that the same way for you? Is it just an outsider? Yes. Well, well, then, Johnny, the thing was with me is that, um, that I've almost felt guilty for questioning him because... Um, this guy that my father was in World War II with, that they were so close, my, I called him Uncle Billy. Well, my Uncle Billy and Cahoon ran a hotel in Kill Double Hills, mm. um, you know, over on the beach. And so they were, you know, they were kin by marriage. And I, you know, so, and I, I just idolized my Uncle Billy. And, um, you know, so I remember my Uncle Billy telling me stories about it. And, uh, you know, we'd be, we'd go swim in his pool. You know, we're little kids. We think my dad's like, why would you want to go swim in a pool when you have the ocean? But, yeah. you know, a pool was it. So we take a break and Uncle Billy would be sitting in the motel office smoking cigarettes. And he'd be telling us about that case. I'm six years old. This is the summer it happened. And my Uncle Billy would be telling me who he thought did it. And now I figure, now I finally realize, yeah, he's saying that person because that's who Cahoon always thought did it. And what I later realized, I never knew that till this till I started working the case, 
but the SBI was was headquartered in in my uncle Billy's Ocean House Hotel. So while Uncle Billy's telling me this, the SBI is probably working just a few a few rooms over on it. So that's why I just grew up with the thing and always haunted me. And um, you know, I'm 60 years. I just turned 60 now, so I can understand where Cahoon's coming from. Of course, I don't feel like I'm old. Of course not, and I'm sure Cahoon didn't. But he was 60 years old when he gets this case. And he's, you know, he's kind of time warped. And that was right during the hippie generation and all. I mean, at the casino over on Nags Head, you got hippies and, and locals getting in fights. I mean, the whole um, uh, generational thing was just huge at that time. So so that's kind of going on. Then with the SBI agents working it, the, the basic leader, unofficial leader of the SBI agents, not in rank, but in kind of taking control was a guy named Lenny Wise, who was um, about 20 years younger than Cahoon, but they came, both came from mainland there and been friends for years. So they both spoke the same, literally the same brogue. And um, so they got what happens often to investigators across the country. They got tunnel vision. They got stuck on one suspect early on and could not get off the guy. Cahoon would call Shotgun Holland when he checked in periodically and say, yeah, we still think it's this guy. And Shotgun Holland, as you were alluding to earlier, just gets a fixation. He wanted to kill that guy. Yeah. He, I mean, he comes, he comes so close to doing it too. And uh, it's, there's, so there's the one guy we're talking about. There's, you know, all these other characters that come into there's, there's a police chief that gets involved. There's characters in the book that have to redeem themselves. There's characters in the book that are unredeemable. Um, we're just, we're not even touching the tip of the iceberg with what happens <laughs> in this book. It's it, there's twists and turns into it. Um, it. It's, it's worth, we haven't even talked about Dottie Fry yet. And that's such a big part, an integral part of the book. Um, so if you want to get this book, I encourage you to get out and do it. Um, you're going to have some chances over the summer too, to meet the author. It's a, it's a really interesting book. I read it all in one day. <laughs> less than a day. Oh, thanks. Um, thanks, Johnny. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's one of the, uh, I think it's probably, you know, the best true crime book, book we probably have out this spring. Um, wow, thank you. Yeah, no problem at all. I mean, uh, of course, I'm biased because I'm working on it. <laughs> so, I, I might be too. <laughs> yeah. But it's, uh, you know, it really did, like I said earlier, it reminds you, it, it's the way that it's written is from somebody who cares about the case, I think, too. Um, and you lived it you grew up living it. Yeah. 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 It's kind of like in, in, in ways, you know, I hope it kind of functions as a love song to those, um, those last days. I mean, in a lot of ways, you know, what happened to Brenda, that was kind of like the end of innocence. And after that came all the development and things were changing, like right down to details, like the, the, the lost colony association decided that, you know, they're, their actors and cast member and crew members would no longer live in houses downtown, which was a really neat thing. They would, they would rent rooms downtown and re and, you know, brought a lot of life to downtown Manio. And after that, they set up this thing called Morrison Grove, which mm. is a, you know, it's a neat place, but kind of sterile where they live right on the sound, maybe about a mile away from the lost colony. And it's very safe, but it's, you know, it just changed everything and all the relationships and, you know, I think relationships are key to this thing. Like I, I write in there about how I met, you, you mentioned Dottie Fry, how I met her daughter 
and how I met Kim and and got to know those two. And, and Kim's the a sister of, of yeah, the little yeah. sister. Yeah. Then I got to know this detective, Buddy Tillett, that worked the case, and like I could, you know, they're buddies now, and I I talk with them often, and um, also just there were there are islanders that I've I've gotten to know doing this. Some of them, the the grown children of of lawmen that were involved in that this case, and that's where the redemption part comes in. That some of them took some wrong turns, so it was hard, you know. I I wanted to be compassionate and fair to everybody so i would talk to those grown children I, I've, I've long had a role in journalism i don't surprise people if i can help it so i would say i've got to deal with this your dad doing this but your dad later did some good things that i'm going to talk about too and they kind of understood that and i haven't heard negative from, from them about that so that's good no i mean you there's you know a couple of characters like I'm thinking about right now that you talk about did some bad things, but then you show later on, yeah. You know, there's some sacrifices that are made too in the book. I mean, it's yeah. It, I mean, there's so yeah. many characters. Yeah, there's the there's. Well, the yeah. Guy I mean, I've read it, and then it's like, okay, I'm after. You know, when you first start watching a TV show, and you don't know all the characters' names. Yeah, you gotta. Uh, thanks for making that list of characters at the beginning of the book, because hell, man, that comes in handy. <laughs> yeah, I can't. the cast yeah. yeah that comes in real handy i like uh, yeah. you know it's good to keep everybody straight i appreciate that page <laughs> well thanks johnny yeah. yeah i'm glad you did that yeah good yeah yeah i think if, if, if we if we come out with a revised edition i need to do a map a, a reader um let me know that she said i could really use a map and i was like yeah i should have done that <laughs> Yeah, that that would be great. You because know, if you, you know, maybe if you have a page or a Facebook page and we put a map up there um now showing yeah. where everything was at. Yeah, yeah. And um, you know, because as you know, like at the end where I make my case for what happened, I mean you've got all the major suspects are riding around this same little area. All of them have like the proximity to, to that they could have done it just as far as proximity. They might not have had the means and the opportunity and the motive, but they sure had the proximity and they're all riding around and most of them are drunk out of their minds. I mean, it's, it's in the islands and the wolves are howling and the, the it, I would say the moon was full, but it wasn't, it was like a crescent moon that night, which makes it even more creepy because it's a very dark night. Well, I mean, who didn't drink and drive on the Island in 1967? <laughs> My God, man, at three o'clock in the morning. Yeah, I mean, we were. It was a different time, and as I say in there, I mean, I, I say in there that you know, I, you know, I knew Cahoon growing up, and you know, when I was waiting tables, I mean, we feared, you know, being called drunk, drinking and driving, which we all learned finally not to do. But in that in that culture, everybody did it. <laughs> it was nuts reading that, but yeah, that part you were talking about, it was you were talking about standing in one place and seeing all these different areas. I'm like, okay, wow, so this is a really small area he's talking about. I mean, I knew it was less than a mile, and you had talked about her walk, but I didn't realize all the things you could see from standing from one area. Yeah, I mean, and still, the the things are still there. Um, the house that um, Danny Barber, her last date, lived in is still there. I went and um, knocked on the door, hoping they would let me look inside, and the woman would not. But but the room where um, the house where Brenda rented a room, um, that's owned by a nice young couple, and they did let me take a tour so that was very moving to, to stand there in that room that she lived in and spent her last days as was to be on that pier and and um kim her little sister hands me the necklace that brenda was wearing the night she died yeah you hold that and you're sitting on that pier over that million year old uh, million year old ocean or more, more than that and you go 
okay, this is ancient. This is this is like this is what you do. You you fight to get something done about this. And the necklace is one thing too that bugged me about Cahoon towards the end of the book, that people will understand when they read it. Um, yeah. The fact yeah. that you know you got to hold the necklace, which was taken off um, for readers, you know, because it's pretty much you know mentioned the book. It's not really giving anything away. It's taken off of her body, but and given to her family. You got to actually hold that, and that's yeah, pretty unbelievable that you got to do that, especially for a case that you had been you know working yeah. on or something and, for a and long now, time. Johnny, yeah, and the other thing, um, the old bridge from um, Roanoke Island to the mainland still stands and, and is used. There's a new bridge now, but I always take that old bridge unless I'm in a Holland as Harry. And um, <laughs> that old bridge is just like, I mean, it's you can ride to the top and traffic is very light on it. And as I think I said that in the book that a lot of times working on the case, I would just ride up there and just park my truck and just sit there until a car came and just think about, you know, poor Brenda. And a lot of days it would be like the day she was found you know, the sound like, like a mill pond. I mean, I think, I think, you know, this, um, a lot of people don't realize it, that sounds, um, you know, are usually just a few feet. You can, you'd be out toward the middle sometimes and, you know, you can, you can maybe just 10 feet um, mm-hmm. and, you know, maybe 20 feet at most. And, and that was, that was one, I guess one, at least one almost good thing about the case is that, is that the killer didn't put her in the ocean because oceans don't surrender their secrets as quick as a sound will. Uh, it takes a long time. And, the, you know, the sharks aren't as bad in the sound. Sharks do get in the sound, but not as bad as the ocean. Um, you know, if she'd have gone in that ocean, who knows? You but, better get a part or about something. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, yeah, it's a really good book. It's been a pleasure working with you on it. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to work together on another book in the future. Yeah, Johnny. Well, we got the Andy book, so yeah. Oh, yeah. That That's going to yeah, be great. May. Well, thanks for being What's on, good? John. And thanks you, the audience, for joining us. The Lost Colony Murder on the Outer Banks is now available online at katiepublishing.com and wherever local books are sold. Have a question or show suggestion? Feel free to reach out to me at Arcadia Author Conversations at gmail.com. Again, that's Arcadia Author Conversations at gmail.com. Thanks as always to Jay and Bill's unnamed band project for the show's theme song. You can find them online on Facebook and Instagram. And I'll speak with you again in a couple of weeks after vacation, and I look forward to doing so.